welcome to ASME TechCast, bringing you the innovators, the innovations, and the issues that push the envelope of engineering. We're talking manufacturing today, specifically the connection between manufacturing capability and national defense ability. I'm Jeffrey Winters, Editor-in-Chief of Mechanical Engineering Magazine, and I'm joined by two experts who have studied this topic in depth. Stephen R. Schmid is the Belk Woodward Distinguished Professor of Engineering at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He conducts research and teaches courses in general fields of manufacturing, metal forming, tribology, and design. And his book, Manufacturing, Engineering, and Technology, is one of the most popular manufacturing textbooks. Shreyas Melcote holds a Morris M. Bryan Professorship in Mechanical Engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, and he serves as Associate Director of the Georgia Tech Manufacturing Institute. He teaches and conducts research in the fields of advanced manufacturing. Gentlemen, um, welcome to today's show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. When I, I have to say, when I hear manufacturing and defense, I immediately think of the United States just before the start of World War II. Uh, that tells you where my head is. Um, the country was coming out of the Great Depression and factories had just begun producing cars and other consumer goods. And over the span of, of just a few months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the entire focus of the manufacturing changed. Um, I recently ran across this factoid that in 1941, the last year before the U.S. entered World War II, there were about 3 million automobiles manufactured in the United States. And according to the Department of Defense, during the war years from 1942 through 44 and into 45, only 139 cars total were manufactured. Instead, car factories were used to build airplanes and tanks. Toy companies started making equipment for the Navy. It was a complete effort. But the connection that, that Dr. Schmidt and Dr. Melko are talking about runs deeper than having the physical capability to produce. Most of today's defense systems rely upon advanced technology from digital control systems on advanced fighter planes to high strength composites and body armor. And when gaps open up between the technological capabilities of competitor nations, it can be disastrous for the country that falls behind. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about that as well as the dialogue between defense research and the rest of the manufacturing sector and more. So let's dig in. Um, so, you know, I, I guess, you know, as I mentioned, the, my, my mental model of manufacturing and, and, and defense is World War II, but it's, it's much more complicated than that, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Um, you know, let me point out to you, you know, the we, we all, I think, are familiar with why the U.S. was so important um, in World War II, right? The arsenal of democracy, is, as we were known. Um, and I think we can even draw inspiration from people like Joseph Stalin, maybe one of the world's most famous charlatans. But he um, had a quote where he said that the most important thing in this war are machines. The United States is a country of machines. Without the use of those machines, we would lose this war. Hmm. And I'll say that America maybe has always had, um, you know, the mindset or, or the persona of being a nation of machines, right? Whether they were early machines, like the earliest steam engines that opened up the continent to the uh, mass production of, of 
uh, of goods in World War II. Um, you know, the quick anecdote I give, you know, I was a professor at Notre Dame for 26 years and in little South Bend, Indiana, a little itty bitty town, there was a company called Studebaker. They provided over 250,000 six ton trucks to, the, to Russia, to the Soviet Union during World War II, which pretty much was their entire logistics system. And um, Georgi Zhukov, the Russian general, is famous for saying, without Studebakers, we could have built as many artillery pieces as we wanted to, but we wouldn't have been able to bring them anywhere. Mm. Right? So, so it's this production capability, this use of machines, keeping this being part of, of your nation's outlook that I think is essential. And it always has been. And, it, and it's even more so today. The machines are a little different. They're a lot more intelligent. Um, you know, or they didn't have the computers we have back in those days, but certainly in terms of supply chains, in terms of developing new technologies, we need to be a nation of machines. Dr. Melko, bring, bring us up to speed uh, about manufacturing today in, in the defense sector. Yeah. Uh, so to build on uh, what Professor Schmidt said, I mean, uh, I think a common thread uh, that I see from uh, the World War II days to what we have today is, is that manufacturing at its very core requires machines. As Professor Schmidt said, machines today are a lot more intelligent, a lot more capable, a lot more flexible. Uh, they have a lot more computing power. You know, mm -hmm. Today we have computing power in our iPhones that are actually as much as what we used to have on mainframe computers back in the day. So all of these capabilities have enabled these machines to perform better, faster, and they are cheaper as well. And so advanced manufacturing today, as we know it, is no longer the kind of manufacturing that we are used to seeing in pictures from the World War II days. Uh, factories today are equipped with machines that move. They're not just stationary. Factory floors are clean enough to be eaten off of. Hmm. And, and you have, you know, many factories that have very few personnel, actually, uh, manning machines. One person manning multiple machines is a more common model today. So manufacturing has transformed in a, in a very good way. Capabilities are much more than they ever used to be. And, and that, is the, that is the world we live in. But we still have humans and machines working together. Hmm. Let, let me pull on that for a second, Dr. Melko, because, you know, I guess when we talk about defense industries and, and other industries, we, we make a distinction. We, we kind of put them in separate buckets, but, they're, but it's, it seems like all the capabilities and all the advances that are, that are being um, put forward in, in standard manufacturing or non-defense manufacturing is all, they're also being used in defense manufacturing. And then it leaks the other way around too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. From my standpoint, really, I don't make a distinction. Obviously national security and economic security go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. uh, a country that actually is economically secure and economic security comes from your ability to make things that people want your ability to make things that people that you can sell to others, whether it's armaments, whether it's consumer products, etc. And a lot of these capabilities in manufacturing that we are talking about are core capabilities that are cross-cutting in nature. And they, you know, having a thriving economy 
that is reliant that 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 is enabled by advanced manufacturing enables national security when you need it whenever you need it on demand mm -hmm. and so so i think i think i see the advanced manufacturing ecosystem it's an ecosystem includes the supply chain transportation logistics etc that enables both economic security as well as national security hmm. very good now I, I always think about my my uh, my friend Lee Langston, who um, writes about gas turbines. He always talks about uh, when he writes for the magazine how, although the the jet engine um, market for for military planes is very small, a lot of the advances that that are produced there wind up in in commercial um, jet engines. Uh, Dr. Schmidt, I mean, are there, there, there must be, that must be more than just in jet engines. It must be a lot of sectors of the economy where advances that were produced for, for the defense industry wind up in, you know, in our homes and in cars and elsewhere. What are you talking about the internet now, Jeff? <laughs> go on, go on. Do you mean the, the, the DARPAnet or ARPANET, I guess? Well, you know, in, invented, like you say, by, by DARPA, but, you know, improved upon by the National Science Foundation. And yes, we every day are interacting with this, with this um, uh, you know, with this product of American research, American military research that impacts our daily lives in a non-military manner. Um, it's it's something that goes both ways. A lot of times you have research that is done, say, by the National Science Foundation for purely civilian reasons, right, or for, for commerce that's not related to the military, but it ends up being adopted by the military, right, mm -hmm. and, and vice versa. That can happen the other way, too. You know, a great example is when you think about additive manufacturing that everybody understands these days. Right. Um, we all know what additive manufacturing is. A lot of us don't remember the names of Hall or Sachs or Crump or Beeman or Fagan, you know, the, the inventors of the technologies that we use today. And they're all Americans and all but one received funding, early funding from the National Science Foundation, right? So in many ways, additive manufacturing is a civilian technology um, created with federal funds but for sure, the U.S. military is seeing additive manufacturing as a game changer that can mm. drastically change and simplify their supply chains. Let me tell the audience that Dr. Melkote and, and Dr. Schmidt wrote an article in, a, in the April-May issue of Mechanical Engineering Magazine about defense and, um, and, and manufacturing. One of the things that, that you guys talked about was the differences between basic research and, and applied research and how both of those are important. So this, this seems like it would be something that came out of, out of applied research. But uh, Dr. Melkote, if you uh, run us through this, um, um, I think many people are, are familiar with the way that basic research, you know, physics and chemistry and things like that are funded by, by the, the government. Um, but walk us through the distinction between the, the basic research, uh, um, you know, like Fermilab or something like that, and applied research and, and how that is important for both defense purposes and for, you know, general manufacturing. Sure, absolutely. I mean, our country has a long history of prioritizing and investing in basic research. I mean, think of basic research as the seed corn for mm. commercial products down the line. Without that seed corn, you won't have much to harvest. 
mm. and, and translate that into products that impact our national security needs as well as our daily life, right? So basic research fundamentally is really for the purpose of advancing scientific knowledge. And at its very core, it could be knowledge that we don't necessarily see value for from a commercial standpoint in the near term, but more often than not, you know, as I said, this serves as the seed corn for other ideas that are more commercially oriented that build upon the outcome of basic research, the knowledge that is created. Mm -hmm. And, you know, federal agencies like the National Science Foundation that Professor Schmidt mentioned, as well as other mission-oriented agencies, the Basic Science Office of the Department of Energy, uh, as well as uh, the Defense Science Office of uh, uh, DARPA, for example, these agencies fund basic research. And that's critical. That's critical, mm -hmm. really, uh, to laying the groundwork, if you will, for things that come and benefit us down the road, you know, in, in, in the form of uh, airplanes, in the form of iPhones, computers, what have you. And applied research, of course, uh, now basic research alone is not enough. Uh, basic research, as I said, is the foundation. And that foundational knowledge comes from physics, chemistry, biology, all of the basic sciences. And uh, on top, the knowledge created by that research enables applied research that is more focused on applications that mm. serve a function, whether it is to transport us from one point to another, or whether it is to provide energy you know, in mm -hmm. the form of solar energy or wind energy or what have you. And so applied research is really the process of translating that basic knowledge into something that's commercially useful in the end. And, and so the continuum of research enterprise that is necessary for our country to be successful, both economically and from a national security standpoint, requires core investments in basic research, but also active investments and substantial investments in applied research to translate that seed corn into something that benefits us, mm. us here in our country. Very good. Now, yeah, if, if I could add to that a yes, little please bit, do. It, it was a great explanation. Um, Shreya's pointed out the importance of investment. You know, the thing that, that we know just, just from experience from, from, you know, looking back over decades is that if a corporation has to exist and if, um, if, the executives of a corporation try to steer their corporation to profitable futures. They have a five-year time frame. Maybe, maybe it's that long of a view. Usually, it's it's much less than that. But basic research generally won't pay off in that short of a time frame. And for that reason, most companies just can't invest in basic research. Just it just they would get murdered by investors if if they didn't give them a, a return on investment in that kind of time frame. So it's something, though, that has a huge impact. We've, we've been talking about some of these products that, that just transforms people's lives on, on the entire planet. Mm. Um, so it's something that was recognized in the 1950s to be in the American interest to invest in this basic research. Um, and it's, it's really the only place where it can happen, right? Companies just, just can't justify it. Um, what we also know, though, is that um, like like Shreya said, we need to invest across the entire realm of basic applied and developmental projects in order to bring ideas to market. Um, um, and part of the problem there is not only that you need funding available, but it's got to be 
consistent funding because mm-hmm. if companies are going to take ideas and bring them to market, they need to be able to plan in the longer term, right? In, in the many year time frame. And if you have a if you have a partner that says, "Well, we'll fund you this year. We'll see about next year," um, it's it's impossible to do planning, right? So, um, so engineering efforts can maybe not even be started if government planning isn't stable. Uh, one more thing on this topic: uh, I grew up, you know, in the in the you know, mom grew up, um, but uh, over the last, you know, like in the '90s and in, and in the 2000s, there was always a pushback on this sort of stuff, talking about the fears of industrial policy and picking winners and losers and things like that. I guess those concerns are are not as a concern anymore. Um, I take it because we are. It seems like there's a push towards a, of an industrial policy, like we've seen in other countries. We're were those fears overblown or, or have we just realized that um, we have uh, the, the needs that we have are more important than the concerns over, you know, picking win- winners and losers? Well, I think picking winners and losers is a legitimate concern, right? You, I don't want to take your tax dollars, Jeff, and give it to Shreya so that he can create a product that drives you out of business, hmm. right? That, that would I think everybody would see that as incredibly unfair, except for Shreyas, who's getting the money, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, if you look at basic and applied research, when you make advances in those areas, those are advances that every country can take advantage of, or every company can take advantage of to, to their benefit. And it's not so much the United States picking winners and losers, it's the United States creating infrastructure so that technological advances can, can occur with every company, not just particular ones that the U.S. says is, is going to be the one that wins. Okay. okay so, so it's it's really this talk about governments picking winners and losers. The government has industrial policy. Uh, what we're talking about these days are programs whereby infrastructure is created so that technological advances can take place, and the government is never going to pick winners and losers. That's just that's just not going to be. You know, it's taking money from you and giving it to someone else to compete against you. It's, it's that level of outrage that would never stand with, with voters. Okay. I, I, I agree. And, and I think if I, if I can add, I think, you know, uh, would we rather have us invest in, you know, early stage research and R&D, which we have always done, and let somebody else benefit from the knowledge that we have created? Mm. Or should we be actually building the infrastructure that allows you know, our enterprises to actually leverage that investment and benefit us and the rest of the world. Hmm. Uh, and so I think that's what we are talking about. Will I call it, do I call it industrial policy? No, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think giving names to these things at which at the very core make a lot of sense. If I explained it this way, that if I actually invest $10 in something, but then let somebody else come and take that and, and profit off it, um, would they like it? They won't. And so, I mean, we have been doing that for a while. So we shouldn't, is all I'm saying. So I, I, I think if you look at it that way, uh, the, the question of uh, it's less about, we certainly don't want to pick winners and losers. I don't, I don't think we should do that. Uh, but at the same time, should we be making investments that enable the continuum of, you know, innovation? 
in the nation? And the answer to that is yes. And that does it for now. Um, Stephen Schmid, Shreyas, Melcote. Um, you guys wrote, uh, just to let everyone know, you guys wrote an article on this topic, um, Manufacturing and National Defense for the April-May 2021 issue of Mechanical Engineering Magazine. It also appears online at asme.org. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your insight and expertise today. Finally, thank you all out in podcast land for listening. And be sure to subscribe to ASME TechCast on Anchor, iTunes, SoundCloud, and your other favorite podcast platforms. I'm Jeffrey Winters, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Mechanical Engineering Magazine. Um, thank you for your time today and um, have a great rest of your day. Bye.